This is, this is the In The Black Podcast. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. What's up, what's up, what is up? Back once again, it is the incredible In The Black Podcast. And in case you weren't aware, this is a podcast dedicated to covering the current events and social issues going on in your black world and covering it all from the perspective of three grown ass men who know when you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. I am your host, Big O, Mr. In the Black himself, and I have an incredible show for you this evening. But before we jump into that, you guys know what time it is. It is our Black Light segment. This is our opportunity to take a deep dive into the people and conversations that deserve the deep dive. Make sure that you follow us across social media at In the Black PDCST on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. You can check out past episodes of our show at our website, www.intheblackpodcast.com. And if you really want to become part of the family, you can always come to our Patreon. I'm sure you will not regret it. But this evening, I have a very special guest, as I said. Uh, Our guest for this evening is an advocate for public education, once serving as a teacher and a principal. He served as the North Carolina NAACP Executive Director, as well as National Director of Programming for the Repairers of the Breach, and has run for mayor in the great city of Raleigh, North Carolina. Please help me welcome the incredible Dr. Terrence Ruth. Dr. T. Thank you Hi. for how you doing? Thank you for coming on and taking time out to be on the show. I know you've got a hectic schedule, so we won't take up too much of your time. But I really appreciate you making the time to have this this conf- this much needed conversation with me tonight. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now I'm familiar with you. I know that the show is familiar with you. But please, for our listeners, for our viewers, if you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yes, I, I'm. I'm a really a husband, uh, a, a father, uh, and my life sort of was journeyed through um, um, being a student of community. And so I, my early career, I was a, a teacher. Um, when I was a teacher, I was a teacher in, in the uh, public school system. I was an alternative teacher and, uh, and I was in juvenile detention centers. So my first school, I was waking kids out the bunk, taking them to breakfast, timing them in the shower and then then i became the instructor um that allowed me to have a lens by which i wanted to ask some deeper questions why is the society producing this outcome um why is that outcome looking like me um how can i uh see more of a macro level view so that led me to my master's in education my phd in public affairs i'm a professor at nc state universities in both social work and african studies um but for me i just became passionate about local power local governance and and the value of that in, in people's lives especially the rich history that black history has in in local government fantastic now i think the first question that i have for you this evening i mean you you broached on it briefly there about the local governance piece why has that become your focus right because i mean i guess you'll go more into depth about this but most of the time we focus on the national level, how these senators and congressmen in the great halls of DC are making these decisions that ultimately trickle down. So please tell me why that you focus on the, why you're focusing on local governance instead. Yeah, as an educator, as a teacher, as a former principal, what happens in your community enters our school building. So if there's homelessness, that homeless student is entering my school building. If, right. there's, if there's violence, that violence is entering the school building. So I began to get a front row seat at what local policy is producing or not producing. But we often focus on the president. Um, And so for me, I began to study like, what is that infatuation with 
federal government and even state level government, but an almost an avoidance of local government. Uh, so I started to look at our history and in our history, you have the sit-ins that was local. They were yeah. sitting in restaurants, the bus boycotts yeah. that was local. Yeah. Desegregation of schools that was local. If you go and read that, this was negotiations with mayors, city council members, school board members. But during after 2020, there was some um, movement and strategy to zoom in for certain groups of political power, zoom into local um, local governance. And so, if you go to your school board me meetings, those school board meetings are packed. People are fighting over what books can be in schools, they're fighting over what history. They're fight so, so if you go into your school board meeting, they used to be empty. <laughs> Nobody didn't yeah. go to school board meeting. Now yeah. they're packed. And so we must also zoom into local. Why would there be a strategy to go back to local, take over superintendent seats, take over mayor seats, take over county managers and city managers seats? Like we need to understand why is that trend happening post 2020? And so for me, there were some questions in local communities where they depend so much on federal that they felt that they didn't have any power locally. And that's mm -hmm. why I became more infatuated in trying to answer some of those questions and remind you of the soil you rest in, remind you of the soil that you walk on. Uh, we had, especially black history, there's a tremendous resume on successes locally. And I, I'm in Raleigh. Raleigh, this is where Ella Baker organized the city. This, this is yeah. the basement of Shaw University. And so yeah. for me, there's a rich history that we, I don't know if we're um, still remembering and tapping into that, that, that rich resume. Understood. Now, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, given that you said that you've been asking these questions, have you come to any answers? I think that's probably the biggest thing because I mean, we're looking at what is transpiring across the nation, probably Florida and Texas come to mind specifically and how how the, the educational landscape is slowly but drastically changing. What answers have you come to at this point as you've been asking yourselves these questions? Yeah, so there's, um, there's several books um, that reach into um, how influential local policy is for the quality of life and most people assume that their quality of life is due to either their, their uh, governor's office or the president's. Um, so what I'm do, all I'm doing is reminding people um, of the influence of local policy on their day-to-day -day life. And so some of the things that I found and that was helpful to me was number one, you, our government works best when government is representing the community. Not when uh, government is becoming the voice and almost the deletion of local voice. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I wanted to adopt the Ella Baker view. Ella Baker had this view that if we have powerful people, we don't need a powerful leader. And so for me, I wanted to uh, really uh, see a, a community that had powerful people. And what I was witnessing, especially when I was running for mayor, is that some of these communities have already defaulted to giving their power away at campaigns, at elections. And so for me, part of the solution is realizing how powerful you are, even if you're one person. Ella Baker organized in a basement, not at the president's office. This was right. a basement. This was a small yeah. classroom. She left Atlanta where King was headquartered, and she came to Raleigh. Yeah. She came to a university. She was working with students. So age... Is not significant. Income 
is not significant. And um, the number of people is not significant. What's more important is realizing the power you have. She started with a small group of students. It grew to a larger number. Okay. But if she was nervous about the size that she started with, she would have never She would moved. never would have gone anywhere. And so I think, I think there's assumptions yeah. around um, what power looks like. And I think that's one of the things that's keeping people from grasping and exercising and being energized to use that local power to see change in their community. Okay, so I, I mean, I'm glad that you said it. Then explain to us what you think people think power actually looks like then. Because for me, I think that most Joe Schmoes would say, or most common people would say that power looks like what the halls of Congress are currently filled with. Millionaires, people that come from everything, silver spoon, or people that have uh, connections. And most regular folks, I mean, blue collar people, working class folks, working class poor, don't fit into any of those categories. So do you think that that's the reflection of what they think power looks like, or do you think that there's a different perception? No, I, I've sort of seen that same um, uh, observation, um, but I want to remind people that we in a democracy, the democracy works best when power is maintained in the voter. So you vote based on what you need. I, so I'm gonna give you two examples. Okay. I was, I was invited to one community in that community, this was a high-end, wealthy community. When I walked in, they had attorneys, they had a map of the city, they had a list of demands or requests or desires for the community. They had um, uh, individuals in there waiting for me to enter in. It's almost like I was entering a, re a, a, a job uh, interview. That's what mm. it felt like. It felt like a job interview. It didn't feel like I was um, talking with community. And so they wanted to know, do you have the skill set to implement and exercise the desires of our community. They didn't care what type of car I was driving. They didn't care. They wanted to know, do I have the tools to implement and, and, and come to bear the things that they had designed in the community? That's, that was one example. The next example, I entered into one community that didn't have the same financial resources and they didn't know the power that they wield. And they almost defaulted to me as a one, um, hero that's going to come and save the community, um, not giving me any yeah. demands, but just assuming that what I spew out my mouth will. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm a student of community. Schools are everywhere. And I'm a student in your school. You tell me what you need and then you hold me accountable next election. Hmm. If we don't have that routine, that cadence, then power will look like what you described earlier. What are the, the down, I won't say the downfalls, but what are the negatives that you've seen that give you pause about where education is for our community at this point? Yeah, no, very good question. We're seeing some, um, we're seeing some unique trends um, in education. I'm, I'm talking about public schools right now. Yeah. In public schools, you're seeing this re-segregation of public schools. Yeah. And you're seeing this defunding of public schools um, and yeah. you're seeing it across the country. So we're now really going back to pre sort of 1960. Uh, we're going to pre conditions. Um, now um, you're seeing an increase um, in 
uh, alternatives to public schools. So you're seeing an increase in charter schools. You're seeing an increase yeah, 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 yeah. without the outcomes that was promised to certain communities, in particular black and brown communities. Um, there's a there's, it's a wonderful alternative if it was to actually produce what it said it would produce. So, so just to are, be clear, you're you're not an advocate for public schools exclusively. I'm an advocate for students who are educated. And I'm a proponent, I'm a result of public schools. I, I, I've taught in public schools exclusively. My whole family's been in public schools exclusively. My son is in public schools. But public schools are on this, literally this lifeline. And we need to understand the crisis that's here and then how that's linked to the power, the local power I was telling you about. I remember walking up to the group of high school students that were advocating and they said, they said, Terrence, uh, uh, I'm not for democracy anymore. Good luck with that. That's what they told me. So, so we're, at a, we're, we're at a point where the trust in democracy is on the ground. The investments in public education is on the ground. So we're talking about bare bones, you know, so survival at this moment. And so for me, I would like to see um, a heightened awareness around the conditions of public schools and how do we get them to perform um, despite this deinvestment, um, this divestment, uh, this underinvestment of uh, resources into public schools, many individuals that we're talking about, all they know is public schools, all they can yeah. afford is public schools. And in some communities, the public schools is the highest employer of that community. So yeah, you're talking yeah. about influence of a pretty powerful institution in some communities, and we're seeing them sort of erode. Now, at every crisis, there are opportunities. Pre-education for black and brown people, education was owned in the home. There were parents who were educating their students and their kids in the home. There was a, um, there was a pride in making sure that that kid who left your home was well-educated from the home. Me as a father, my son is nine. I have books galore. He's seeing me read and study. I'm a professor at the university. He's seeing me ask questions of the text. He's seeing me highlight and study. And then we are producing a library for him. Uh, so I very rarely depend on institution. There's some ownership that I have at home. So, okay, I guess then that begs a bigger question then, because there are many people that might hear this conversation and say, Dr. Ruth, I work two jobs. My wife works two jobs. We need to work these two jobs for us to be able to put food on the plate and a roof over our heads. It's difficult for us to take, take time to educate, quote unquote, our kids. Not to mention, we don't know what we don't know. So yeah. how do we balance that out? Yeah, so we've seen um, a vacancy in uh, teachers from across the country. There's a vacancy yeah. in teachers. So we're seeing a lot of substitutes. We're also seeing a retirement of a whole group of, of teachers who were once thriving in the educator workforce. Um, my son, since he can remember, since he had a memory, he has always had an education tutor, a black woman who is retired educator, who educates my son two days a week. It was once three days a week. Um, and she's $25. Uh, it's almost as if you're paying for AAU. It's almost as if you're playing for Pop Warner. But that money that will go to AAU or Pop Warner um, is going towards a tutor. 
no, this is this is year round. That 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 education slot for my son is a holding position, and we see it as an investment. It's almost as if we're playing for a little league soccer or we're playing for haircuts. Um, that investment in that tutor that will educate him three to two times a week, we just see it as an investment that's necessary. Um, so that, so even if we don't have the time, which I have a very busy schedule, my wife has a very busy schedule, um, that's a budget item for our home. That's a budget mm. item for, um, for our son. You're either going to pay for education right now or you're going to pay for it later. So the money that we're putting into him right now, that's going to end up in a scholarship. Um, he's in he's in a he's in an honors program. He's he's in Mandarin. Um, oh. When 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 during 2020, when everything was virtual and the learning was sort of um, eclectic, I would say, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. we 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 he had that tutor already. We wasn't leaning on the quality of the teacher in that classroom. We were leaning on um, the balance between both home learning and and external. I see education as an investment, an investment that should happen in the home and when you pay your taxes happen at the school building. Uh, I think mm. there's, I think there's a both and I don't think it's an either or. Either or. Yeah, I can, I can agree with that. All right. Given your history, I want you to try and walk our listeners, walk our viewers through, I guess, some of the changes that you've seen since you started in this path of education. Cause I don't think I, I think it goes without saying, but we're going to say it anyway, that things have changed drastically within the past five years. Talk less of the past decade, 15, 20 years. So please give us some of those changes that you've seen since you started on this path. Yeah. So I, I want to first say that most of my experience have been in the alternative schools. So alternative schools is when there either is a, discipl a discipline concern or a learning deficit um, or an attendance issue. Uh, normally kids are sent to my school. Um, usually that was a unique audience, but exclusively black and brown and poor. I very rarely received uh, a wealthy student, no matter if they're black or white. I very rarely received a wealthy student, if at any. I could probably count in my years of, of being in education um, a student um, from a wealthy audience. And so I want to let you know the lens that I'm talking from, from my professional experience. So pre-2020, we were seeing gaps in outcomes. We were seeing gaps in outcomes across income. We were seeing gaps in income around race. We were seeing gaps in income around geographical locations, neighborhoods, zip codes. We were seeing some of these trends. That's pre-2020. Mm -hmm. Post-2020, we are seeing more schools talk about mental health crisis, kids taking their own lives. Yeah. And yeah. that, that post-2020 is impacting all classes. Now, now we're not just talking about um, poor. We're talking about all classes, black, white, Asian, Latin America, Spanish, all classes. Then the next thing you've seen is the, is the remote learning. You've seen post 2020 in our state in North Carolina, we've seen the largest exodus of public schools. We don't know where they unenrolled to. The largest oh, in history. Oh, yes. Re yeah. Rewind that. Yeah. You've seen the largest exodus from public schools That's within right. North Carolina within That's the right. past, since the pandemic? That's right. That's right. So you've seen an exit. People just fall off the roster. Some of them have gone into homeschools. Some of them have gone into charter schools. But there's a huge chunk that we don't know. So you've seen the largest exodus of students from public schools. That's alarming because we, at one point, you know, relied exclusively on public schools. Yeah. Um, also with that, uh, that particular uh, exodus, 
we've also seen a decline in uh, teachers' jobs. We've seen a decline in bus drivers. We've seen a decline, like some of these positions, there's vacancies that's just rampant across education. It almost requires a federal level intervention, the number of vacancies that's across the country. Our governor called it an education crisis. Our governor, and the governor of North Carolina, said our public school system is in a crisis, just like we was in a COVID crisis, it's in a crisis. So we're seeing an anemic um, education system um, that is screaming for support and assistance. Um, and so along with that exodus, with that vacancy, um, with the uh, sort of unenrollment, we've seen the largest loss of learning. So most people are like, okay, you know, um, during the summer, we're going to relax and we're just going to continue where we left off. Kids are now going backwards. Yeah. So we have seen kids go backwards in their learning. So it's actually a learning loss rather mm -hmm. than just a stagnant until you enter school again. We've seen a huge learning loss where the federal government had to provide dollars to states yeah. to support that intervention. To supplement this on that. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so we're seeing some really troubling trends post these last three to four years. Okay. I, I, I got to ask the question then, as you're talking about this deficit, this brain deficit, um, I know that in some states, there are a couple of states across some, excuse me, some cities across the nation now are going to a four day school week instead of a complete five, because there is such a drastic deficit in the number of teachers that are available to teach these classes. Do you think that there is a brain drain in our public school system because we are not advocating for teachers the way we're supposed to? Because I can, for me, I can honestly see where it seems as though there's an attack on education, this fear of quote unquote indoctrination, it would scare me away from being a teacher. So do you think that that's part of it, that, that educators don't see regular folks advocating for their profession at this point? Yeah, I, I wish I wish this was a, a recent issue. Um, Pre-COVID, we had the largest demonstration in our downtown, which is I'm in the capital, Raleigh's the capital of North Carolina. We, in our downtown, we've seen the largest demonstration by teachers. I mean, hmm. they, it had thousands of teachers. They all wore red shirts. And this was pre-pandemic. I mean, they were saying we need advocates um, for public education. Um, and, I, and I wish I wish that what we are talking about right now, because you're absolutely right, I wish it was a contemporary issue. I wish it was an issue. And so there's some things that we've heard. We've heard salary before. Now we're hearing conditions. And now you're seeing housing costs have jumped since that time. You're seeing cost of living, groceries, just standard things have gone up since that time. Um, you've seen the um, workload include maintaining and supporting and sustaining mental health of students at a heavier based than before. So you're seeing what was already a demonstration on issues exacerbated post-COVID. Uh, and so um, we're really in a deficit for recruiting teachers. What is the recruitment? Why would I go into this profession? What is it? <laughs> what, yeah. what, it used to be, um, one of my mentors is Dr. Dudley Flood. He's, he's legendary. He's one of the um, leaders who helped desegregate public schools back, back in, uh, during the civil rights era. Um, he's still alive. He's in his 90s. Um, but him as an educator was a distinguished role. 
It was, I mean, it was a role in society and community that was honored and, and distinguished. Um, we need to elevate um, the perception of that role in society. Uh, and also, uh, we need to incentivize that job, just like we have done with nursing. Just when, the, when the COVID has highlighted the, the significance of nursing, high, yeah. uh, COVID has highlighted the significance of psychologists. Um, yeah. COVID has, I mean, I think it has said the same for educators. And unfortunately, um, unless we incentivize this profession, um, we're going to continue to see these levels of vacancies in, in, this, in this particular space. So how do we attack that then? I mean, how do we put, uh, I guess, for lack of a better description, how do we put a, a focus on these efforts to better advocate for teachers? Because I know one of the, Frederick Douglass famously said, it's easier to build strong children than it is to repair broken men. So, so how do we get people in place to help us build these strong children? How do we better advocate for teachers then? Yeah, number one, um, who you elect at all levels. Most people don't even know their school board member. They don't even know who that human being is. Um, your school board member is important. That's the person who's voting on your superintendent. The superintendent matters. That's the person who's literally driving. That's the CEO of your school, of your, your school district. Um, knowing who you elect, their philosophy on education, because just because they're going for school board doesn't mean they're pro-public schools. Just because they're, 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 they're your superintendent doesn't mean they're, they're pro-public uh, uh, school teachers. So there's some understanding around who you elect that's significant. So when I say there's a, a shift towards um, uh, having influence on local policy, there's a group that's taking over school districts. There are groups that's taking over counties. There's groups that's taking over cities and municipalities. Uh, and so I think your school board matters. Your superintendent matters. Making sure that you elect former educators, people who have sat in that seat and understand yeah. the significance of that of that role. Um, these are things that you can do. Um, that's low level. You, it, now everything you can do online and look up these individuals. But most importantly, understand that you are the one that holds power in that relationship. So when you call that superintendent, they are working for you. Their salary comes from you. When you call your yeah. school board member, that you are the one in power. <laughs> when you call your state representative and 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 and, and senate seat, that's you are the one in power. When you call your federal representative, you are the one in power. And I think there's an assumption that because the floors are marble, and the building is tall, and that they're riding in uh, black Escalades, that somehow um, they're wielding power that's uh, separate from you. That is not true. Um, and especially walking into an election season. These individuals are going to have a, a, a more open ear than they would in other seasons. What's been the biggest challenge that you've faced in terms of getting this message out, getting people to understand their power? It's not very, it's when people have been conditioned to think and feel and be a certain way for so long, I know that there has to be some challenges. Yeah, for me, I, I, um, I whenever I see somebody who feels as if all, I remember I was at a community and the community was going through um, uh, uh, an eviction. It was, they were going to evict all the individuals and it was going to, uh, it was almost like a, a housing project and they're going to, they're going to demolish the building and build, build something else in that space. The property was sold. 
And I remember going to an eviction party, that block party, that's what they called it. Music was playing, there was bubbles, and it was like a cookout. It was almost like I was in a cookout. And they would they were celebrating the last memories they were gonna have in that community. But what really um, hit me was an older black woman, she had to be late 80s, grabbed my hand and, and she said, I trust you, don't leave me. And it was almost like she shifted her last hope over to me in that in that in that hand exchange, mm. and for me, people are on their last hope, um, and uh, and it, and that that's devastating for me because democracy has um, a subtle hint of hope in it. Democracy yeah. in and of itself um, was supposed to be as it as an experiment, a way to give people voices who historically haven't had a voice. Um, and so th there was a hint of hope um, that was inherent in the civil rights movement. They were saying, do what you said on paper. Like there was a hint, and, and yeah. I'm seeing where um, that light is diminishing and uh, and it's diminishing at, at, at different income levels and at different ages. There's some people that don't even want to have anything to do with uh, school, school, especially school in politics, so school board members, yeah. um, superintendent, they don't even have anything to do. It's become so um, anti-American to them, or 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 um, or it becomes a, a mental health concern for them. They don't want to have to seek this deep level of division because it, it it will have an influence on their bodies. And so I'm seeing people completely separate and become disinterested. Um, and the system that's supposed to take care of them and hear from them. Okay, I, I want to get you out on this question, and I think it's probably the crux of our entire conversation. What would you, what would you like to see, or what do you anticipate seeing from the general public in terms of galvanizing and fighting these other? entities that are coming into these school boards and trying to rewrite history for lack of a better description. What is the way for us to combat this narrative, these issues? Yeah, what's what where my hope rests, um, and, and I and I'll talk through that lens, is that I come from a people who have a rich history of being resilient in the most difficult times of this in the history of this country. You're talking about Harriet Tubman. You're talking about Frederick Douglass, <laughs> you're talking about Martin Luther King, you're talking about some, some of these great leaders who led and a group of people who were also leaders in their own right, who had courage when moments seemed most dire, when moments seemed most difficult. And at times it was existential. They didn't know if they were gonna live <laughs> after they advocated for an issue. They didn't know if their homes were gonna stand after advocating for certain yeah. issues. We have a history, a soil that has been here and done this before. So we're not, we're, we don't have to imagine some foreign fantasy, you know, community or world or people. We, we yeah, literally, this new. yes, yeah. So, so from that, um, what I hope to see, and that's why I started a podcast called Illogical by Truth. In that podcast, we try to decode some of these things that seem mystical, that seem hidden, that seem, oh, I don't have a PhD, Dr. Roof. I don't, I don't know if I'm, under, no, 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 no. Our government was made so that the common person can engage. <laughs> Our mm -hmm. government was made. So I want to mm -hmm. decode some of these things that keep people from entering the room. I want to mm -hmm. pry that door open 
so that you can enter and see and, and explore um, the avenues that you inherently, by, by word of paper, by its origins, you inherently have power in this space. And so mm -hmm. I want to decode that and see more people um, place emphasis on local ways in which they can exercise power. They can exercise power in their community. They can exercise power in their schools. They can exercise power um, in, in their local government, in their municipality, in their county. Um, and they can exercise power at, at you know, more traditional ways. Like when you mentioned the NAACP, you mentioned the repairs of the breach with Dr. Barber. Those are more traditional ways. But you don't need a whole massive team. The people that we mentioned were lone rangers in moments. Mm. They were a small crowd in moments. Um, they didn't know that they were going to, you know, change a whole nation. I'm, I'm close to Greensboro with the Greenboro sit-ins. Yeah. Five young students. These wasn't adults. Yeah. These were five yeah. young students. Um, these young students didn't know that they're going to change America. They're going to start a wildfire of people standing up for truth. I think this is a moment in which it requires that courage. I, I know I said I was going to get you right on that question, but I, I, another one comes to mind. We're talking about the presence of the church. You mentioned Dr. Barber. What role do you think the church now has in recapturing this, recapturing education in 2023? Because, I mean, if we look at his, historically speaking, the church was the root for many That's initiatives, right. including SNCC and all these other places that you had these, uh, not just the sit-ins, but you had these collective units that would show up in the church and they would funnel out from there. So what role do you think that the church now plays in educating and better educating us in 2023? Yeah, it, it, that's a very good question uh, because uh, at one point in American history, it was illegal to learn. The very first schools for black people were in churches. Yeah. The very first teachers were pastors. So they had two hats. Um, uh, we had the Rosenwald schools here in North Carolina, and many of those were either next to or inside a church. Uh, so at one point, it was, it was the only legal place to gather was in churches. So the options for black ideas, black organizing, Black unity, black courage only could exist in churches. And so now we're living in an age where people have more choices beyond churches. Um, now you're seeing where you, Black Lives Matter, that was that was not a, a religious uh, group. Um, you're having these different groups organized that are not touched by the faith community. Um, but I say that to say that there's more choices, but also there's a, now a wonderful opportunity for the church to hold a different role. We enter this space with a different role. Um, we're seeing in our country where there's a decline in uh, uh, individuals who are claiming to be religious at all or to be Christian at all. So you're seeing a decline, and it's and it's a generational. So you're seeing as younger they get, the less apt they are to 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 stand and raise their hand for that. But there are other avenues. The tech companies are now giving com raw community organizers tools to create and design. You're seeing where. Um, uh, universities which had a, a role back then are becoming hubs for creative organizing and control so mm. you're seeing a, mm. a, 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 a varying uh, options of, of, of ways to um, hone in uh, a pipeline of leadership for um, education for black and brown communities for poor communities and so it, it doesn't have to rest exclusively on the faith community like it had to legally um, at one point in America Interesting. Dr. T, I really appreciate you taking the time out, man. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Now, where would can folks find you if they'd love to find you? 
Yeah, so I'm on every social media platform. It's just Terrence Roof, T-E-R-R-A-N-C-E-R-U-T-H. That's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, and I also have a podcast um, that we sort of break down some of these issues. We'd love for you to check out. It's called Illogical by Truth. Illogical by Truth is on every platform. Apple, Spotify, every platform that you you know catch your podcast, um, you can find us there. And so I just would love for you to, uh, to plug in, listen, follow. And so thank you again. And I'm Big O, Mr. In the Black himself. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at MR underscore In the Black. And I want to thank you guys for joining us for another incredible episode of the In the Black podcast. You could have been anywhere else in the world, but you chose to kick it with us, and we appreciate it. Make sure you follow us across social media at In the Black PDCST on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. Once again, come on over to our Patreon and get some behind the scenes content. I'm sure that you will not regret it. But as always, until next time, informed, intelligent in the black.